Thank you for joining us at Essential Ethics, your gateway to ethical discussion and education about complex bioethical issues that arise when caring for sick children. Essential Ethics is made possible by funds raised through the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. We want you to be inspired by the stories of courage of our patients and parents and the staff who care for sick children and be inspired by the clear thinking of the team at the Children's Bioethics Centre when things get tricky. Welcome to our series of classic conundrums from the team at Essential Ethics. Essential Ethics is brought to you by the Children's Bioethics Centre of the Royal Children's Hospital. I'm your host, John Massey. Decision-making in paediatrics can be tricky, taking into consideration the doctor's opinion, the parents and the patient. When children become adolescents, we give them wider scope to either make decisions or be involved in decision-making what happens if the teenager wants to make a bad decision for themselves? What point do you say, no, you can't do that? To help us think about decision-making for teenagers, I'm joined by Dr Di Hanna from the Department of Oncology. Welcome, Di. Thank you. And Professor Claire Delaney from the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Claire. Hello. What I might put to you is a case. Uh, I just remind listeners that the cases are fictional, that we've made up, but of course that does come from sort of a general experience and the sort of situations that we have found ourselves in before. So this afternoon what I'd like to talk about is Darren, a 16-year-old with acute lymphoblastic leukaemia, often called ALL. He's in year 11 at school and is an active sportsman and has a busy social life. The diagnosis of ALL has been a big shock and he's been struggling to come to terms with the duration and the complications of treatment. With standard treatment, he'd have about an 80% chance of cure. If he did not respond to standard treatment, he'd require a bone marrow transplant. The recommended initial chemotherapy regimen includes medications that will cause his hair to fall out and a Cushingoid facial appearance. Darren is adamant that he does not want these side effects and requests an alternative regimen, even if it means less chance of success. Darren's parents seem to be in support of him to make this choice. So this is a difficult situation, and I think the ethical question is, is it ethically acceptable for Darren to be given a less toxic but similarly less effective chemotherapy? Di what do you think about Darren's choice? So I think this is a really tricky one. Um, so you rightly said ALL is a curable disease. The expectation is cure. And we know that the therapy for most children is very good at curing most children um, and young people. It is not without its side effects, and they are considerable side effects. And for a teenager who's got a busy social life, who's an active sportsman, that would um, that would come as you know quite a, a challenge for him, I think. Um, but for me, it would not be ethically acceptable to offer 
a less intensive treatment for a number of reasons, the first being that it would not offer cure. And what we know about um, therapy for ALL is that we have to risk stratify it, which means that based on his age, the biology of his disease is inherently more resistant and requires intensive treatment to cure him. If we gave him less intensive treatment, we could select a clone of ALL that becomes more resistant and makes treatment down the, the track even harder um, to get him into remission. So that would take something like transplant off the table because we need to achieve remission for transplant to be effective in ALL. So without kind of effective intensive therapy up front, this boy would not be cured. This young man would not be cured. And, um, you know, for, for, you know, would have a relatively short kind of life expectancy. So I suppose I'd want to be very clear with, with him about his choices and make sure that the family also understood that. Um, Could I just interrupt just because it, he's focused on... I guess what most people in the community might be focused on, hair loss, altered appearance, which would be temporary. Absolutely. But are there other side effects as well that are worse? Yes. That he yes. has a right to be afraid of? Yes. There are life-threatening side effects in some cases. Um, we know that teenagers are more susceptible to side effects of treatment and tend to experience the more severe end of the spectrum. For example, some children in, and young people in induction can end up with grade four pancreatitis and in intensive care. So um, next to hair loss is, you know, on the other end of the spectrum. Um, so yes, he, you know, the, the, the treatment itself has its risk, but we know that the treatment is very effective and in, you know, 95% of cases we can get children and young people through that risky period. So... I guess he still wants to live. He just wants you to tweak it a bit so it's not as rugged, perhaps. Is there any, is there any room to move? No, is the short answer. <laughs> All right, so you're giving us a pretty clear uh, idea of, of what he might be yes. uh, up against. Yes. Claire, he's 16... I still feel maybe Di's got something she might be able to do. But he's making this decision. We've heard from Di that he wants less treatment or accept less good outcome. Should, should we let him do that? I mean, he's 16 after all. Well, after hearing Di speak, I am retreating a, a bit from what I originally thought, which was this is a case where... A 16-year-old has a choice between optimal treatment with a 80% chance of cure uh, versus less optimal treatment, which might, in my mind, take a bit longer or um, just be um, have slightly less risk, although that was what was needed to be asked, or, or slightly less chance of success, I should say. Um, in which case, it, it, uh, if it was that viable alternative uh, treatment, then it would be 
a, a clear case of weighing up. Does he have capacity to understand the difference between these two optimal versus suboptimal treatment regimes? Um, does he is he old enough to uh, understand the consequences of that choice? And therefore, I would be probing quite. Um, deeply what the choices are. Now, you've cut off that uh, deliberation to some degree because the, it's now a case of does a 16-year-old have a... Uh, is it ethical to allow a 16-year-old to choose um, to refuse life-saving treatment because otherwise he will die? Um, if he doesn't get the treatment. He won't just get a slower route or, and, a, and a lesser chance. There is no other option. Is that correct? Yes. So the, the, the upfront therapy for ALL is absolutely critical. Mm. The time to remission is absolutely critical. And we know that the longer it takes to get a child in remission, the higher the chance of relapse. And so if we are using less intensive treatment, he will almost certainly relapse. And we know what we know about relapsed ALL is that we have selected a clone that is more resistant to treatment in most cases, and therefore he would be harder to get into remission. Mm. So we we live in in the world of immunotherapy, and I might just make a comment on that. That you know, in in the adult sector where um, older patients with ALL may not tolerate intensive chemotherapy, there are studies that offer them immunotherapy upfront, which is has its set of side effects, but it doesn't have that, you know, hair loss and the chemotherapy kind of look, um, if you like. But that's not available up front in children and young people. It would need to be in the relapsed refractory setting. Okay. So that leaves our options kind of limited. So you open the door a little bit and then slam it on us, uh, (laughs) Di. But that... but. but but that's okay. So I might just let's just tweak it a little bit that he's got the his year eleven formal coming up. His new girlfriend of a few weeks is joining him, uh, and that's a, that's four weeks away. Okay. And he just wants to look like he looks now in four weeks. So we'll get to and dig into the trickier question, but of about how much and and making him do something he doesn't want to do, perhaps. But can we delay a little bit? Can we offer him something to work with him? If I were to delay starting treatment, I would delay starting everything, and that would take into consideration the way that his disease presents. So if he's well and his white cell count is low and he's not too symptomatic, then there's absolutely no rush, and often we don't start treatment in some cases for a week or so. I think four weeks might be pushing it, and um, in that situation, he's probably going to be close to death. So I think we need to, you know, be clear that, that this is a life-threatening illness and that can progress quite quickly. Acute is the nature of the disease. It comes on fairly acutely over a few weeks to months, so a month would definitely be pushing it. So the, the, um, the ethical conundrum here, I think, is... Th- and the principles that you're um, trying to weigh up and stretch out is the, on the one hand, respect for a adolescent's autonomy and capacity to make decisions and make choices for themselves, which is 
a really important ethical principle that we strive to um, um, implement. So if we were honouring that principle, we would make every effort to um, give Darren this this nominal uh, hypothetical um, case um, some what he's wishing for in some way, which is to go some way to where towards where he wants, which is where you're coming from. Can he just can we delay it so he can go to the social so we give him some space and a bit of extra time before the treatment is started? And that principle clashes with that very strong principle of essentially not harming, not doing anything that you know is going to harm this child and benefiting him instead with treatment that you know will benefit. So it is... I, I think that's where you were going with that Yeah, I was. Term. I'm going to still tackle you on that, though, Claire, because, you know, we are going to harm him. Uh, he's going to have hair loss, cushing or facial appearance and maybe even grade 4 pancreatitis. So can you just draw that out a little bit more in terms of, of, of what you mean by, you know, sort of harm or harm to his interest? Mm. Well, I think we're weighing up the the very real harms and risks and burdens of this treatment against the more extreme and final harm of l- losing his life. So the process of ethical analysis involves identifying, well, what options do we have? Um, the, the first option and this needs to uh, be teased out, is to override his choice of not pursuing the standard standard treatment. And um, so that means overriding his autonomous choice and acknowledging that there are real benefits to that choice, which is to save his life, and real harms, which is a whole series of risks that he may encounter. The next option is to delay, as you suggested, and there are, seems like, depending on where he's at, very real harms there. And the third option, if we divide them up, is um, to um, find that he is competent, he's almost an adult. He, If he demonstrates that he understands the significance of his choice and the consequences to allow him to choose... Uh, not to go ahead with the standard treatment. And there are very real risks with that, which are very high. So where where does Gillick come into this? So people often talk about Gillick competence, which was a a court case in England around a 15-year-old girl attending a general practitioner, asking for oral contraceptive pill but not wanting her parents involved and not wanting her parents consent and it ended up at quite a high level in the courts and they agreed that she was of sufficient age and sufficient capacity to make a decision to have the oral contraceptive pill and therefore it was being called Gillick competence. So if Darren is your averagely bright Aussie male in year 11 He's reasonably articulate. Uh, and he's insistent. He really doesn't want... He's really worried about those side effects and doesn't want them. Is, is that just Gillick competence? Is that good enough for us just to allow that? Di, I might start with you. I think when it comes to life or death, um, 
it, it probably isn't enough. Claire? Yeah. So you're saying the significance of yes. the decision yes. weighs yes. in. Yeah, I was looking up, uh, looking at some notes about Gillick competence and um, uh, this statement I think is important, that the original judgment set out a stringent test of maturity and it did so by insisting that a minor not only know and understand the relevant facts of any proposed treatment, but also appreciate the significance of the treatment, its implications and consequences. And in this case, we're, think, we're translating that to Darren. He needs to know not only about the facts of the treatment he's refusing, but also the um, significance and implications and consequences of refusing. So it's quite stringent. And the other uh, piece of this uh, update on Gillick competence is that since that time, courts have really retreated from Gillick and um, it has become harder for a young person to... Um, uh, be considered competent if they disagree with the medical <laughs> treatment being offered, and um, so, and it, and they've also uh, there's been cases and situations where if parents agree with um, the parents have the final say despite a child being found to be Gillick competent. So it's it's been watered down a bit, especially in in serious cases. So I would suggest that this case of Darren is a case where you could you could find that he is Gillick competent. He's playing uh, sport at an elite level. You know, maybe as we get to know more about him, he's quite a sort of competent and able and, and mature young person. But, but whether, you know, you would ethically say it's appropriate to allow him to end his life, that he understands... Um, that he takes appearance ahead of and um, on short-term effects ahead of life would be really hard. I think what you're raising there, and I'm going to come to Di about that because she's used to working with yeah, with young people, is the concept that he's an adolescent and exactly what you've described, taking making a decision of appearance over living, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, is the sort of thing adolescents do. And if we understand the neurobiology of adolescence, I don't know that anybody understands that <laughs> fully just yet, but that's part of adolescence is not necessarily being consistent, not necessarily making great decisions, valuing things that grown-ups wouldn't necessarily value. And in essence, I think that challenges the idea of competence on itself or capacity and I think in Gillick you know the capacity to make a decision the contraceptive pill not necessarily too hard it's a good decision and this different so Di how do you feel about that when you're dealing with 16 and 17 year old boys in particular yeah look it's really it's really tough because and and often you know that is something that we focus a lot on in our diagnosis talks is how their appearance will change because that is that is the only thing they'll remember and that is all that they'll think about. So um, it's it's really tough because that is important to them. And, you know, 
maybe in five or ten years' time, the fact that we saved their life will be, you know, <laughs> will be looked back and we did the right thing. But for at that moment in time and probably for the few, first few years of intensive treatment, that that's what he'll be thinking about. So, At our conference last year, Mark Mercurio from University of Pennsylvania raised this really interesting idea that the person we're responsible to when we're thinking about decision-making for children is that person is a 25-year-old adult, which is interesting that he chose that number because sort of the neurobiology would suggest that that's when boys in particular sort of achieve some degree of maturity. So, Claire, do you think that's right? Do you think that Mark's hit the nail on the head there, that, okay, 17 is pretty smart, but really we're answerable to the 25-year-old Darren? Yes, on the basis that there are limitations to the adolescent an adolescent's capacity to think ahead to when they're 25 or beyond, then there's an ethical justification for overriding or at least um, being somewhat paternalistic in deciding that the medical treatment is, is in their best interests and they don't have the capacity to come to that view But having said that, I think it's really important to balance that and bring in that important principle of respecting their autonomy and their choice. So um, the next step is really to think about, well, if we think it's ethically appropriate to override Darren's choice, that really the risks of allowing him to choose this are so great that it would not be ethically appropriate to stand by and let him then what can you do to mitigate the harms of overriding his choice, I think is where this plays out. Because in practice, you couldn't, you couldn't stop him refusing, actually. He's no doubt tall and strong and you can't physically force him. So what, you know, what might we do at Royal Children's Hospital? So here we are in a situation... Dies looking after Darren. She's done her usual die thing, which is <laughs> good thing, and talking with Darren and the family, and you know, trying to sell coals to Newcastle and ice to the Eskimos, and she <laughs> can normally do that. But Darren's really not wanting to pursue that for what seems like reasons an adult wouldn't necessarily choose. So, what what a, what what would we do here at the children? How would we move this? forward or what could we do? Yeah, so within our team we have um, a dedicated nurse coordinator who um, who kind of helps us um, with our young people, um, not only at the diagnosis point but at kind of critical time points or at difficult times in their treatment. I think given it sounds like Darren's quite a well boy so I don't think there's any super rush. I think we should do what we can do to get him on board and to try and understand better really what we're dealing with and I think our nurse coordinator can help a lot in those um, discussions. I think it's also helpful for them to meet other um, teenagers that have gone through a similar journey and um, for their families to to you know sit down and, and have have discussions with their families um, to, to walk some of the paths and to see how how things have gone. Um, 
there's also um, at the Royal Children's we've got kind of chronic illness support programs for young people. So, you know, ALL is, is quite burdensome, but we can get rid of it and cure him. There are other children with and young people with illnesses that, that don't go away. And so just to have a little bit of that kind of perspective and, um, you know, um, uh, you know, some just to see what other, other young people are going through, I think can be quite helpful. Would you call knowing, an ethics? Knowing that he could come out of at the other end, yep. Would you yep. call an ethics consult if those approaches didn't work? Um, yes, absolutely. Yes, um, yep. I think I think that that could to, could help guide us and give us some some strategies for dealing with that young person to keep keep him empowered to a certain degree, but to um, really highlight the the. the you know, this is a life-threatening illness and this is what we need to do to, to, to get him in remission and to give him long-term cure and grow up to be a healthy young person with his own children one day if that's what he wants. So, but I think it's complicated, though. Uh, we haven't mentioned the parents, except to say in the case they seem to be agreeing with him. And I think, in a sense, that really um, com- complicates things because... Um, you are having to convince uh, both sets in some ways if the if the young person is disagreeing with his parent that's the normal more normal situation where you have two people on the side of best physical interests but when you have parents agreeing with um, an, a, a young person to say they'd rather not take the um, uh, side effects and the risks of treatment and to opt for a, a treatment which would, is likely to end his life, the options for forcing the issue are quite hard. Mm-hmm. If the child was younger and they disagreed, you you might consider, you know, removing the child and forcefully treating. But there's no option of removing Darren, and he's too old to be removed, really, anyway. So you have a whole family who is um, ostensibly choosing, wanting to choose a um, an option which could lead to the end of Darren's life. So do you think we can force the issue, we should force the issue. Here's a young person making a bad mm. decision that we're obliged not to let a young man make such a bad decision. Mm. We've sort of crossed a threshold, perhaps that harm principle, that harm threshold. I'm thinking of those um, Jehovah's Witness cases where the court ordered that a, a, you know a young person receive a, a transfusion uh, but in this case, you can't order a young person to turn up. What 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 is the treatment regime that he would be required yeah. so to that, do? That's the difficult thing. So I think, in theory, yes, we should be have to be able to force them. But in practice, we are relying on them mm-hmm. to be responsible and to come to their treatment. And it is. When I say intensive, it means probably the first month in hospital, if not twice weekly visits, sometimes three times a week visits. And that can persist for several months, depending on what their treatment looks like. So 
you know, we're, we're entering into a contract where there's mutual understanding and I prescribe the treatment, but he has to adhere to it and be compliant. And it's very easy for him not to be. So whether that's, you know, not taking his oral chemotherapy at home and not turning up to appointments, how do we physically bring him in? Do we call the police? Do we... So, you know, that's where it becomes really challenging. Um, yeah, and it raises another ethical conundrum, which is what is the scope of the duty of mm. an oncologist to um, uh, ensure compliance, monitor, ensure adherence? Um, how far should you go in that? Certainly it raises an important ethical obligation to put a lot of work in educating, supporting and bringing people to the table, developing that relationship. But um, it doesn't go as far as putting cameras outside the person's yeah, ha- or inside the person's exactly house or, right. or any other possible way of monitoring that's that's um, inv- invasive. So if we think, though, that it's not all right for him to choose another therapy, and really I, I actually thought that there might be a little something that mm-hmm. you could wriggle with, but you can't, mm. Ty. And then the parents are still agreeing with him in his bad adolescent decision. Uh, and while it might be difficult to enforce the full treatment, Claire's raised the idea of that you have an obligation. So would you ask a court to make a decision and enforce the treatment? Yes, I think if that's what it came to, we'd have to. Claire, how would you feel about I, that? In my mind, I was just starting to think, I, and it would be something we'd raise at an ethics consultation if the family was really strong on this and Darren was also strongly of the view they'd weighed up the... Uh, they understood the uh, risks of not going ahead, um, they they decided that the risks of the, the treatment, the curative treatment, were still quite high and they didn't want those burdens... I was starting to wonder whether this is something that people have a right to choose uh, to do. Normally, there we would regard parents' decisions about their children and cutting off life-saving treatment to be not within their zone of parental discretion to, to make such a decision. But this case is right at that boundary where we have three adults almost from the one family all choosing a very, uh, uh, well, a, a suboptimal, a shocking pathway in most people's view, which is to choose um, prob- probable death over, um, over curative treatment. But would you, could you, would a court overrule three adults choosing that pathway? And I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think you raised the Jehovah's Witness case where mm. there are, you know, in lots of jurisdictions been cases where the parents of a child, the parents are Jehovah's Witnesses, the child's assumed to be a Jehovah's Witness or even nominates that that they are and need a life-saving blood transfusion, which is usually a single 
event. Mm. Sometimes it's associated with surgery and it would be very tricky if it was associated with a malignancy that yes. could need treatment with lots. So I think in those cases it's clear that the court's not going to accept the parent's decision regardless of it being religiously based. Yeah. Um, and here it would be a decision that I think the courts might think about the chance of cure, which is very good, versus, yes, the probable or certain side effects that are mostly going to be reversible, mm-hmm. very un- unlikely to be yep. permanently harmed. Yes. Uh, and so I guess the treating team would be hoping the court would come in favour of treatment. Yes. And then you'd be left with the practical problem of whether the family would comply with the court or, or, or sometimes I just wonder though whether your determination to go that far and the mm-hmm. courts yes. might be a message to them to knuckle down yeah. and accept the treatment. And I think that's where an ethics consultation can be helpful because it can give clinicians the uh, some empowerment about what is ethically appropriate so they can become more definitive about this is what is required for your child. It's, it's ethically not appropriate to choose option B. Option B is not really an option. It's, it's certain uh, death, really, by the sounds of things. So having that analysis of the pros and cons of available options helps to clarify exactly what is available and what can be said definitively. And I think um, sometimes if there's uncertainties with the treatment and the treatment outcome, it's it's much harder to be definitive and to say this is what is the required treatment. In this case, there is, it does sound like um, there's just one option here to save this child's life, this young person's life. And it would mean that your scope of um, coercion, persuasion, education is pretty strong. And I think, Claire, one of the things that you highlighted a little earlier was that it is always harmful to override people's decisions and it's harmful to the adolescent Uh, and so even if a court agreed and treated and saved his life we might have done so against at least his initial wishes and we need to undergo strategies that mitigate uh, that harm and, and be concerned about that harm so i think we started at a place with a case where we thought we might have more options we wondered if it was ethically appropriate not to offer the full treatment and something a little softer, but we learned that that wasn't that there wasn't anything softer. So you were very clear right at the mm. beginning it was not ethically appropriate. Mm-hmm. Claire, you've pondered it some of the ethics uh, about that, and are you happy with that decision that it would not be ethically appropriate to allow him to do uh, no treatment or a, a, a less treatable option treatment? Yeah, I'd be more definitive if I knew a bit more about this family, as always, because it's 
not easy to be uh, definitive about an, an ethical decision without getting all the the facts and the and learning about what would the consequences be for this family if you if you took the decision out of their hand forcefully um, or you know made some other had a state intervention. I think that it's ethically on paper, ethically appropriate to override this young person's choice and the family's choice. But the the question then becomes: What is the process? What is the ethical uh, part, way of doing it? And I think that's where the discussion heads in this case. And then we'd need some more discussion um, yes. about that. Well, I think what we probably need to wrap up there. Uh, and typical of these cases, started somewhere and went a little different uh, from where I thought it was going. I think it was really tricky with Darren not wanting treatment and his parents supporting him and harms in all directions, but perhaps the biggest harm of death perhaps being the thing that, that sways us there. So, uh, Di, thank you very much for your input. Claire, thank you very much for your ethical analysis of this difficult case. And If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more at the Royal Children's Hospital website. Just go to rch.org.au forward slash podcasts or find us on your podcast app. If you would like to find out more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference, visit us at rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. And there you'll find lots of resources about children's bioethics. We'd love to hear what you thought about this podcast, so please leave us a review. Essential Ethics, be inspired.